Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Welcome to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and this is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. My guest today is Damien Bassman. He's held the drum slash percussion chair for several different musicals over the years. Laugh Whore, Children in Art, The Color Purple, High Fidelity, Glory Days, Next to Normal, The Addams Family, If Then, Christian Chenoweth's show, My Love Letter to Broadway, SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical, and he's the associate conductor and plays drums and percussion in the hit musical, Jagged Little Pill. I'm honored to have him on my podcast today. Ladies and gentlemen, Damien Baskin. Welcome to the Broadway Drawing 101 podcast, Damien. Thanks so much, Clayton. I'm super excited to uh, see you and chat. I have so many questions to ask you, but the first thing I normally ask is, uh, where were you? Where are you from? Um, I'm from DC area, from Northern Virginia, Fairfax is where I'm actually. I was born in North Carolina. I lived there till I was three, but I grew up outside of DC in in Fairfax, Virginia. So, when did you move to New York? Um, I moved to New York after grad school. Well, and let's let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Fairfax. Did you go to elementary and middle school and high school there? Yeah, all all of it. Yeah, same. Ha- you know, one house my whole my whole life. Yeah, um, it was great. It was an amazing thing because I was close to DC. We used to go here, you know, the National Symphony and the Airmen of Note and, uh, you know, the, all the, like, all the arm, the military band jazz bands. My dad used to take me to all those concerts when I was a kid. So I got to see like Lionel Hampton when I was a kid and Louis Belson when I was a kid. And it was, it was, it's pretty amazing looking back the people that I got to see, I was super lucky. I never got to see Buddy, but, but, uh, you know, he came through there, but, and then also like, the National Symphony, we would go to all of the like outdoor summer concerts growing up. And uh, so it was pretty great. Yeah. What got you started playing drums? Um, my, uh, my parents were both amateur musicians. Um, my dad played like all the reed instruments and he played in like the like community theater and pickup orchestras. He still does that stuff now that he's retired. He does more of it. And my mom played guitar and piano, like, you know, folk guitar like she used to do like protest concerts during this vietnam war and stuff like on college campuses um so they were both musicians so they they gave me a bunch of toy instruments when i was a kid so i had like a guitar a piano drum a trumpet a clarinet little toy ones and i liked the drum the most so uh when i was in like i think it was the summer between second and third grade my dad signed me up for like group drum lessons and uh, after a year of that, the teacher said, you know, he shows some promise. If you're interested, you know, we should think about doing private lessons. And so I started taking private lessons with him, you know, half an hour a week. And he was my teacher from third grade until I graduated high school. Did you start out on the, the drum pad and the pad was like tilted? Yeah, a, a slanted. <laughs> I still have it. It was actually, a, a, yeah, an old Ludwig slanted metal pad with a thick slab of rubber. And uh, my teacher, uh, his name is Sam Evans. Um, and, uh, he, he played in the army band, but he, he loved teaching his, his teachers were Shelly Mann and Jim Chapin. Oh, wow. And he, I've still, I just get chills thinking about him. Like he, it was, it was like, he was, I don't know. I mean, I'm using this like colloquially, but it was like, he was like an angel in a human body. He was just like this little guy that was just pure positivity. And he just taught kids all day long, six days a week. And he and his wife had this group called the Patriots of Northern Virginia, which was like a like a colonial marching group. And they had like groups for each age range. So like if you were a little kid, you just like marched with like flowers and like a little little flag. And then when you got to the older thundering drums, which is what I was in, you play. There was just like a tenor and snare drums, and you would march and play this series of cadences. And then the older kids, there was a. Uh, fife and bugle and drum corps and uh it was just so cool and every year 
the the like end of the year awards and we would do like parades and things like that and every year at the end they would have a an award ceremony and the the marine band old guard fife and drum corps would come and play and if you know, i don't know if you're familiar with those guys you ever seen these the videos a little bit they're badass <laughs> they're still badass and they played on these old huge rope soisman rope drums and they wore the colonial garb and they were like no expression no movement just just hands, these beautiful traditional hands. And they just played all these traditional, just fife, bugles, and drums. I think now it's just fife and drums. Uh, I don't think they have the bugles anymore. I never see the bugles and stuff. But it was my dream in life to be in that in that group when I was older. Like, that was, like, everything I wanted was to do that. Um, but, you know, I got ever, those things change when I got older. But <laughs> I was about to say, did you ever wind up playing in that group? I didn't. Um because when I when I got a little older, my uh, you know they had the solo and ensemble festivals for like you know elementary school band and high school band, and when I was in fourth grade, I, I did the solo and ensemble, and and the the judge that year was Garwood Whaley, um, which you might recognize the name. He he wrote a lot of the like bibles of like um primer snare drum and mallet and timpani handbooks and he owns meredith uh, meredith music publications he's really incredible um and he was the an, a president of pas for several years and uh um, percussive art society and he was the judge and apparently i mean i wasn't aware of it because i was in fourth grade and i played a snare drum solo but but he told he took my dad aside afterwards and said if he's still playing drums in seventh grade this is my information give me a call and so my dad being the, you know, the Jewish father that he is kept that card <laughs> and, and in seventh grade contacted him and I like went and took, a, took my first lesson with him and left the lesson in tears because my, my main teacher, Sam Evans, who I kept taking lessons with the whole time was just this like ball of love and, and positive encouragement. And, and Dr. Whaley was, was much stricter and, and, um, was he like the teacher in that movie Whiplash? No, no, no. He was nothing <laughs> like that. That was my that was my high school band teacher. That, wow. That when I that's a whole other story. <laughs> that movie Whiplash was very real for me. Um, when I saw that, it ended. I was in the fetal position, and I'm like, <laughs> like, are you okay? And I was like shaking. I was like, this is this was my life. Um, but anyway, but uh, no, he, he just he just you know he just expected you to to do well. There was one week, I, I never forgot this lesson. There was one week that I went and I, and I'm lucky. I've always been good at sight reading. I'm still really good at sight reading, but, but for mallets, <laughs> it quickly got too hard for me to sight read. And there was a week that I went and started my lesson and did snare drum and there's no problem and did timpani, no problem. And I started trying to hack through like whatever the George Hamilton green lesson was for that week. And it was just a key that I hadn't practiced. And, and Dr. Well, he go, he stopped me and he was like, did you practice? And I just couldn't lie. And I was like, no. And he goes, and he just put his sticks down and closed the book and he said, I'll see you next week. And I was like, uh, and he, and he was like, he's like, I'm not going to let you waste my time or your parents' money. I'll see you next week. And it was such a good lesson <laughs> to always be prepared. And I never didn't practice again. It was a really great lesson. I'm super grateful for him, but not at the moment. I wasn't super grateful. <laughs> Did you play in marching band in junior high? I did. I, you know, I had to. It was a requirement, not in junior high, but high school. I loved the Patriots. I loved the like rudimental marching stuff that I did when I was a kid. But um, no, uh, my I was super duper lucky. Fairfax County Public Schools when I was there, I don't know what they're like now, but they were like the top. They were the top three school systems in the country. It was it was Dallas, New York City, and. Fairfax, Virginia, Northern Virginia. And uh, so my high school, like the graduating class in my high school, my freshman year was like 1500. My, my class was 732 and we were the smallest class they had ever had. Um, so it was a huge school and the arts programs in my school were phenomenal. There were, you know, in, in high school, there were four symphonic bands and three orchestras and four choruses and two guitar ensembles and three jazz bands. And then there was a marching band and, and the only way that they got the good players to be in the marching band was they made it, if you were got into the top symphonic band, it was mandatory to be in the marching band. <laughs> so it was like forced marching band. 
um, which made it less fun, although it was my only social life because I was a band nerd. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but it was, it was, it was, it was tricky because I had also, I had learned traditional when I was a kid and it was the first time I ever had to play match. And so I had to learn to play match, which was, it was hard on me. And also I was like shorter by like two feet than everyone else on the snare drum line. Um, cause I, I got onto the snare drums when I was a freshman and everyone was tall and they had to like break a harness and put it back together so that it was small enough for me to wear. And my head was almost level with the drum next to me wow. and I didn't know about earplugs. And so it was not, not the best situation <laughs> my first year or two in marching band, but I did do it. And then I grew to love it. And I love like, I just, I love like the old guard. Like I love rudimental drumming so much. That's like my bread and butter. That's how I learned. Like Will Coxon was my first book and I love rudimental drumming still. It's still what I do as my warm up before my show is play three cans and play downfall Paris. And, um, but that, that type of marching band, and it also wasn't cool marching band, like drumline movie kind of like, it wasn't like funky, cool stuff. It was like, you know, so you started out on a pad and it was slanted and your snare drum in the pit that the, the last show that I saw for you is SpongeBob. It's slanted. Do you, you still play traditional grip? I do. Yeah. I still remember, I still remember you saying like, aggressively traditional <laughs> is what you said. And I love that. I tell people that all the time. <laughs> You're like, that's an aggressively traditional plant. <laughs> it was like, it was like this. And I was like, Oh snap. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and learn how to play traditional, but man, hey, we'll talk about that. Yeah. That was so much fun to play. So you, uh, did you play a lot of drum set in addition to orchestral and, and, and marching? Band? Oh yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, I, I learned pad and then I started the private lessons with, with Mr. Evans. And then, you know, after I, I don't know what his like pedagogical process was, but at some point he let me start taking drum set lessons and, um, and it was awesome. And, you know, I listened to, I mean, the first music I, I remember listening to and loving was the Beatles. And like the first thing I ever bought with my own money was Sgt. Pepper on cassette when I was like five years old or something like that. But I always, my dad listened to classical music and jazz and my mom listened to like Motown and funk and blues. And so I had like a really amazing, but what neither of them really listened to was rock. The only thing they both liked rock wise was like the Beatles and cream. And so I got that at in, in the middle and that was what I first gravitated towards. So, yeah, I mean, I just loved, you know, listening to that and playing along with Ringo and, and that stuff. But then I also was like, cause my mom, I was listening to like fifth dimension and muddy waters. And so I was also playing along to that stuff when I was a kid, which is super, I feel super lucky now that I got that that was part of my first feel and you know, that I was playing along with and stuff. Um, so I was always playing drum set and then, um, and, and taking drum set lessons. Uh, but you know, it's so different when you're taking lessons and then we're actually playing the music, <laughs> you know, like. Were you in any bands in high school? Oh yeah. Um, when I was in, in, when I was in junior high, none of the high school drummers wanted to play the musical. And so my, the junior high band director talked to the high school band director and said, said, I've, you know, one of my kids could do it. And they were like, he's in junior high. He can't do it. And he's like, no, he, he can, he can do it. And he can read music. And, um, and so they were doing a uh, music man, actually. I remember that because I remember when we were reading through and I was like, why is there a Beatles song in the show? Like, because um, till there was you is in music man, but I knew it as a Beatles song first, <laughs> but um but yeah, so I pl was playing that musical and then the guitarist and bassist who were playing that in high school were like, are you in band? And I was like, no, I'd love to be in band. So then I was like, I got to be in a band with these high school kids. Um, and it was so, so cool. And we were called Strawberry Jam, like <laughs> so many <laughs> high school bands. <laughs> Somewhere there's a cassette that we recorded in his basement. Um, but yeah, it was fun. You know, we played the Kings and the Beatles and the who. And I think at the time it was like, we played some, uh, played the cult and, uh, I'm trying to remember if there's anything else contemporary that we played Led Zeppelin, you know, so it was mostly classic rock stuff that we were playing. Um, I did that. And then I was in another band 
the Brazilian train surfers. And we, we, you know, the battle of the bands in my school was, was, um, was like a really big deal. It used to be held in the gym and they would rent a full stage and full sound and lights and smoke machines. And like every high school from the area would come to our battle of the bands. Um, it's really funny. After I lived in New York for a couple of years, I met someone that was, Oh dude, Mike Aaron's used to come to our high school's battle of the bands. Like he's really? like, wait, that's where I know you from. Like I saw your band play at, at Robinson Ram Jam <laughs> when we first met, actually in New York. That's right. He, he did grow up in DC. Yeah, right? he's from Reston. Yeah, and I'm from Fairfax. But yeah, it was a big, it was a big deal. It was really exciting. And you know, there we we got second one year with Brazilian trans surfers. We did, um, we did. Wait, Brazilian trans Brazilian train surfers? No, oh. trans wasn't a word back then. Um, <laughs> train surfers. It was, and uh, we did, um, what did we do? We did a Led Zeppelin medley. We did Metallica one. That was the, the, that was the, the only time in my life I got a double basement pedal just so I could play that song. <laughs> um, I got it for that. And then I felt my, my foot getting weak and I got rid of, and I, I mean, the pedal's still in my studio, but I haven't used it in 25 years, 30 years. Um, I can't remember the other song. Anyway, it was cool. And then my senior year, I put together a jazz quartet and we won, we won with the jazz quartet, which was pretty cool. But I remember there were some, there were every year, there was always one or two really great go-go bands because we were right near DC. And I still, I can hear in my head, the guy that was playing the, like the bongos with one of the bands. And I play that like any time I get a chance. I love that so much. Do you ever try to play along to that stuff? Oh yeah. It's so much fun to play. It's so much fun. Those pockets are so bouncy. When I think of your playing, I think bouncy and I totally hear that music in that, you know, it's like, it's so bouncy and so much fun. It's like both, Fat and bouncy at the same time somehow. Fat you know? and bouncy. That's a good name for a band. <laughs> 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 so who were some of your drumming influences growing up? Oh, man. Other than um, your teachers. Yeah, my teachers were, were really huge. Um, definitely early on for me, uh, I think the first music I really loved was jazz, but not, not like bebop. I came to that. 30 years later, like I love swing and I love small band, like early, early small band stuff. So it was really, um, a lot still to this day, probably Joe Jones and buddy rich and Shelly Mann are, are three of my biggest influences. Um, I just think like Joe Jones and Shelly Mann, just like, they're like melodic soloists in, in my mind, the way they play. And, uh, I mean, I got my record collection right here and like the Shelly Mann section and the Joe Jones section are like the biggest, like any record that I can find with them on, I buy just to hear what they do with anybody. Wow. Um, so yeah, Joe Jones and Shelly Mann and Buddy Rich. Um, I still remember my, my dad, it was the only time I got to stay up late. My dad would come and get me out of bed whenever Buddy was on Johnny Carson, you know, and like bring me into his room to watch. And, um, and then Gene Krupa just for like that feel, you know, the, like just that, that, I loved something that he, that he said. I remember reading an interview with him when I was a kid and like he said, like if he was playing and nobody was dancing, then he knew he wasn't playing, you know? And I, I think of that all the time and that influences me in a major way when I play still. But uh, yeah, Gene Krupa was a, so those four like jazz drummers. And then um, when I got older, I think one of my hugest influences is Steve Smith and Dennis Chambers, those two guys. Um, I think it's just probably an age thing. Like they hit when, like, you know, we were in high school and like all that stuff was happening. But, um, but it was funny. Steve Smith was a bit of an accident. I had asked my parents for like, remember the early DCI VHS, VHS videos. So I'd asked them for a Steve Gadd video for Hanukkah and they got me Steve Smith by accident. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll watch it, you know? And then I was like, and then he became like, probably still my biggest influence of, of all time. Like just like the way he plays always. And like when, whenever I'm in doubt about when I'm creating like drum parts, I'm like, what would Steve Smith do? Like he just like every part he made is like so perfect in, in, in my opinion. Um, so, so Steve Smith and Dennis Chambers and Dennis was a huge influence that the hybrid thing that I do, you know, like he and Alex Acuna were the, I mean, I saw them doing that in the eighties, you know, cause, cause Dennis would play kid and then have the timbales over here and Alex would play kid and have congas over here. And that's why I put a djembe and bongos next to my drum set 
as soon as I started playing things was because of those guys. Um, yeah, so you can blame them for all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do that when you're playing my part. Interesting. Um, yeah, I because yeah, it was uh, that was a, a big influence. Well, it was funny because I was I was playing with this group called Absolute Ensemble, um, which technically we still exist, but we haven't played in several years. But it was a major major influence for me, and a lot of the the cats that you saw that I played with are because of Absolute. But it was a chamber orchestra that did crossover projects, and so like when I first started playing with them, I, I subbed on one tour. There was a drummer and a percussionist, and, and on one tour, I subbed for the drummer for the first half. And then the second half of the tour, I subbed for the percussionist and the rep was all Frank Zappa stuff. And so I had to learn like the Ed Mann book for half of it. And I had to learn the Terry Bossier book for half of it. That was, that's still the hardest music I've ever played ever. And then the next time that we went out, neither of them could do it. And so I just like put the two setups together, except for the mallet parts and just played both of them at the same time. Cause I had remembered Alex and Dennis Dennis saying that's what he did with P-Funk was that, you know, they didn't have a, couldn't afford a percussionist sometimes. So he would just play the percussion parts while he was playing kit. And I was like, well, I guess I'll do what Dennis did and, and put it together like that. And so that was kind of like when that whole thing started for me. And it just happened to be like right after I moved to New York, it was, it was really early on. So, wow. Yeah. Did you, after high school, you went to college? I did. I went to, um, I went to Cleveland Institute of Music um, I had, I had fallen in love. Th- thanks to Dr. Whaley, I had started to fall in love playing timpani. Um, and then my senior year of high school, I auditioned for something called the National Symphony Youth Fellowship Program. I had, I had been playing in the American Youth Philharmonic since junior high. I had gotten into that and that started my love for classical music. I mean, I, and I was just really, really lucky. There was just so many opportunities around me. Um, my dad forced me to go to the audition. I cried the whole way there. And then, <laughs> and then, um, but, but I got in and, uh, the, the conductor and, and artist director was a violinist in the, in the national symphony was Luis Haza, Cuban, uh, amazing musician and kind of like Mr. Evans. He was just like full of love and, optimism and positivity and he put together this you know youth orchestra and um it was amazing i mean so many of the people i was in youth orchestra with are principals and major orchestras all through the states and the world you know like like and actually a lot of them were from my high school my high school was was really rich in talent um it's just public high school but uh so i was playing in that orchestra and so i was i was really loving classical music a lot um and then my senior year, I got into this youth fellowship program. And, and the, uh, so as part of being in that program, you got to go once a week. I got to skip school once a week and go watch the National Symphony rehearse on Thursday mornings. And then I got private lessons with the timpanist in the National Symphony, who was Fred Begun, who, was, who had studied with you know, Saul Goodman, who Dr. Willie had also studied with Saul Goodman. And um, so I was really lucky. I had really amazing teachers. And, but they were all, Freddie was real old school. He was like, I have nothing but love for that guy. He was so beautiful. And he's also an old Jewish guy. So like, I felt like he was like my grandpa and he was always calling me booby. And he had a bowl of chocolate chips next to the timpani during lessons. And he's like, whenever you need a little energy, just pop a few chocolate chips and you're ready to go. (laughs) And, uh, guys, they're such amazing characters. And, um, but he was like all about like, if you don't love it, then you're not playing it right. Just like a really, a lot of really great lessons about like, that it, about where it's coming from the heart and feel and, and, uh, and so, and one of the things that Dr. Whaley told me about, and I was also playing when I was in high school with the George Mason university orchestra. Cause they, now they have a really great music program, but back then they did not have a very big one. And, um, I auditioned and started playing with them. Man, I'm sorry. I'm talking so much, but this is, it is all, it's all pertinent because, um, when I was in like ninth grade, they also, they didn't have anyone to play their musical. And, and since I had started playing with the orchestra, they asked if I'd be interested. And this was also like kind of uh, talking about it. I know this is what led to it is the first, the first one I did with them was kiss me, Kate. And that also, I had to combine the percussion and the drum set book. So I put the glockenspiel like Bill and Miller does. I put the glockenspiel on top of the bass drum and had the percussion next to me and then just used the floor tom and like put to, you know, cut 
physically copied and cut and pasted a book together to, to play, to play that part. But so I was like playing with that orchestra there. And one of the other people in that section was this guy named Aubrey Adams, who was in the army band. And he was like, you know, if you want to pursue a career in music, he said, you should go to a conservatory. He's like, if you're not sure, cause I didn't know if I wanted to play drum set or classical, you know, I was like, part of me wanted to play, you know, sessions and, be in a jazz club every night till 4am. And part of me wanted like an orchestra job with a townhouse in Georgetown and like, just, just live a life like that. And so I was really split. Um, and Aubrey, Aubrey said, if you, if you at all want to go the classical route, you should go to a conservatory. You can always practice drum set on the side and keep and keep up your chops. And so I took that advice and I auditioned for conservatories and I ended up going to Cleveland Institute of Music and part of the, the draw there was the, um, the dean at the time was a jazz pianist. And, um, you know, you know who Andy Kubitschewski is? Mm-hmm. He, he, he was a drummer for, um, for uh, Nine Inch Nails and uh, Trent Reznor, and, and he's from Cleveland. And he had gone to Cleveland Institute Music for a classical. But then he started doing sessions and got too busy. And, but he was, was the dean. His name is Marshall Griffith. He was his drummer for all of his jazz work. And they, and Andy had just gotten busy and sort of was not available anymore. And so the Dean called me up and said, listen, if you come here, I'll use you for, for my jazz trio. And I was like, all right, that's great. You know? And so that led me to go to Cleveland, but the very first day of school there, um, I was like put, moving my drum set into like the corner of one of the, the student. And there was like a grad student there practicing board game bass, you know, a thousand times on the xylophone. And he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, Mr. Yancha said I could, could set my drums up here. And he looked at me and he goes, this isn't Berkeley. <laughs> and then like, put his headphones back on. And, kept, and I almost, I have the theme of almost crying here, but I like almost burst into tears. I was like, I chose the wrong school, but it ended up being great because my teachers supported it. Uh, even though the, the peers didn't, but it worked out because I was the only one there that could play drum set. And so like any drum set gig was mine that came through the school um, for the first two years that I was there, nobody else even played drum set. They were, they like, it bl- always blew my mind that somebody was like, like, I love classical music and wanted to play it, but I found my way there through like Neil Peart and Stuart Copeland and Ringo and Keith Moon. And someone was like, I love that triangle part. I'm going to be a percussionist. I mean, that's always what I joke, but I'm like, how, how did, why did you go want to be a percussionist without playing drums? It's so weird to me. Um, but you know, whatever, whatever works for people. But I felt that it really helped because since I approached like classical percussion, like a drummer, like about groove and feel and sound and pocket, I think that it, it added a lot to, to what I was doing. So I'm really grateful for the, the split background, even if it did cause some emotional trauma for me for a few years when I was there. <laughs> I think that makes a big difference when, you know, playing, yeah. coming from a different perspective and you have, a, you definitely have a certain feel that separates you from people that just focus specifically on one thing. So it it it, yeah. it it helps you get a lot more work that way, I believe. Um, yeah. After after college, you went to grad school. I did. Yeah. You know, college was Cleveland Music was amazing. I chose Cleveland because I um I I heard Cloyd Duff play at a Pasic convention um, when I was I think a junior in high school, and I had never heard a sound like that. I mean, it was the most beautiful tone and sound I'd ever heard. And then I became, cause I was studying with two teachers with Garwood Whaley. And I, so I kept taking drum set lessons from Sam Evans my, my whole life, but it just became just drum set. And I started taking like the legit percussion from Dr. Whaley and then timpani from Fred Begun. So I had three lessons my senior year a week. Um, but when I heard Cloyd Duff play, it just, it totally changed my life. And I was like, I want to learn to make that sound. And at the time, everybody winning timpani jobs in any orchestra had gone to Clevelandness too. And so I was like, God, that's where I want to go to school. And so I went to school there so I could learn that Cleveland sound. And I figured I'll always have the other sound in my hand. I can make that sound if I want to. And um, I went to Cleveland and it was, it was a really interesting experience because it was really close-minded and really cutthroat competitive competitively it was not a healthy environment and it was really about like a little bit of um showing that you were practicing the most hours and you practice more hours than anybody else 
And it did not come from the teachers. Like the, the teachers are Paul Jancic, who's still there, who's a timpanist in the Cleveland Orchestra, and Richard Wiener, who sadly passed away this past year. Um, but those guys were not about that. I mean, they, they would tell me, like, Damien, you don't need to practice so much. You're doing well. Don't worry about it. And, you know, and, and, and Mr. Wiener would always tell me, he'd be like, you know, whatever you do, don't lose your swing. You, you have swing. Don't lose that. I stopped playing drums and I lost my swing. Don't lose your swing. You know, so they were not about like spending 15 hours a day, but there was so much peer pressure and everybody in the department was like, if you're not in, if you're awake and not in the practice room, you're wasting your time. And so that I was not like a strong enough person to, to like resist that. And so that seeped in and I ended up developing really debilitating hand issues. Um, and, uh, I mean, when I was there, three people had carpal tunnel surgery Wow! when I was, when I was in school there. And a lot of people had hand issues and back issues and, and it, it kind of broke me a little bit mentally. Um, and so I, I knew I was like, all I have to do is win a job. My life is about winning a timpani job. And I like kind of lost track of everything else, even though I had been paying my rent the whole time playing jazz gigs. Like that's how I paid my rent was playing jazz. And I learned so much. I'm so lucky to play those gigs with, with those guys and Cleveland had a great jazz scene. I'm sure they still do, but I mean, it was amazing. Um, I got to see so many great players so close up when I was there, but, um, but yeah, I really lost track of things of like priorities, you know, it let, it became less about be, being a great musician and learning to be a better artist and more about being perfect when I was there. And, um, which I think probably all musicians go through a little bit of that, but the, the being perfect was not, Sometimes that works for people. It did not work for me. And it, it, it really shut me down and mentally and physically too. And then um, my senior year, Tim Adams came through. And Tim Adams had gone to school there. And he was timpanist in the Pittsburgh Symphony, um, which incidentally was my first audition. And I, I did really well at. And, and, uh, and then he ended up winning the job. He's, he's older, about 15 years older. Um, and he came to do a master class. And he, he said two things during that masterclass that stuck with me really hard. And he said, he said, like, you know, I always knew I had to get an orchestra job to support my drum set habit. Like he, he, he couched it like a, like a, like a drug thing, but like it made like it, that resonated so strongly with me. And I was like, that's what I need. I need an orchestra job so I can play drums all the time, you know? And so I like became obsessed. I didn't, I didn't get it in the good way that he meant it. I became obsessed with like, I have to get an orchestra job so I can play drums all the time, which doesn't make any sense. But, um, but you know, I was a kid. And, uh, and the other thing was uh, I was playing Finlandia symphony parts, great symphony part. And, and I was like worrying so much about like using proper technique, which was a really big Cleveland thing was like technique. And, and at one point he stopped me and he goes, Damien goes, I don't think you can make a bad sound. Just hit the drum stop worrying about it. And that was like so key because it's like that Malcolm Gladwell thing. Like I had put in my 50,000 hours of technique and I wasn't going to make an ugly sound unless I wanted to make an ugly sound. And, and he, him just giving me permission was huge. And so when I was graduating and I knew I wanted to go to grad school, I was like, I need to, I need to study with that guy. Um, but I made a pit stop on the way and I went to Juilliard first, which was a mistake. And, and I, and I left Juilliard. Uh, it, It was really interesting when I was there, it was like the opposite of, of Cleveland. Like at Cleveland, you were never good enough and you never were practicing enough hours. And when I was at Juilliard, there was a real vibe of, of like, this is Juilliard. You've arrived. Like, and, and it kind of came from not the, not the percussion faculty, but like, I remember like theory teachers and like, just like a general vibe of the place. It was like, this is Juilliard. You've arrived. You've made. And I was like, I'm not anywhere. I'm a kid and I need to get a job. And, and, um, and I just felt like the people of my peers were great people and great players. And, you know, like Matthew Strauss, who's in Houston Symphony is amazing. And Pablo Riepi, who just took over at um, Oberlin college, like really great people. But, but I wasn't getting enough like challenge from my, from a lot of the peers. And, and also like, I felt like everything I did, my teachers were like, that sounds great. And I was like, well, it doesn't sound good enough because I'm still in school. So make me better kind of a thing, you know? And I was just like, you know, I was, had real blinders on and I was practicing like 15 hours a day. And I like developed a situation where I couldn't open my hand and couldn't move my arm <laughs> really over practice. Wow. Um, yeah. 
And, uh, and so Tim came through again, like just like those things that happen with the Pittsburgh symphony. And he came and listened to me play. And he was like, call this woman and tell him, tell her that um, you're coming to Carnegie Mellon on a full scholarship. Ask her to give me a call. And so like, he just like plucked me out of like a real depth and I still couldn't play. And what Tim did so freaking grateful, like he was like old school mentor. So I couldn't play physically yet. So my lessons were like, he'd call me at like seven 30 in the morning. He'd be like, yo D come pick me up. And I'd be like, what? He'd be like, get dressed and pick me up. And I like would go pick him up at his, his house and we'd drive to the hall and he'd like work on it on his drums. And I'd like sit with him and watch him work on the timpani. And, and then like, I'd sit in the hall during rehearsal and then we'd go to lunch afterwards. And then he'd be like, drop me off at home and go practice, you know, go, go. And I would drop him off at home and then come back. And then like, you know, we have rehearsals or whatever. And then like, and then he'd be like, okay, you know, come get me after the concert. And I'd pick him up and we'd go, like, go hear salsa bands. And he'd be like, you see that girl over there? Go say hi to her. You get an F for your lesson this week. <laughs> and I'd be like, I can't. and I, I was like super introverted. I was like, I can't talk to her. And he was like, he, he knew what motivated me. He knew I didn't want to get a bad grade, but I couldn't talk to a girl. <laughs> so he just was like this like old school, like full body mentor, like heart, soul, mind, hands, everything. And like fixed my head. And then gradually I was allowed to start playing again. I was like, seeing a bunch of doctors and stuff. I had focal dystonia. It was, it was, I had to like relearn how to play. And, um, and just like, he was amazing. And he, he just like, got me back. And through doing that, I was started to take auditions again and I would always get to the finals. Uh, and then I just had this like epiphany of like, like, you know, I was in Pittsburgh and I was playing with like a klezmer band. And then I would play with like, like you're the band that you play with the marching thing. Like we just like wearing a snare and we'd play like the Pittsburgh pirate pet band. Like we'd march around the stadium playing. And then I would play like with this pop singer and then I would play like sub with an orchestra. And I was like, this makes me happy. Like just doing the orchestra stuff. I was so unhappy. And he's like, okay, so then let's do that. Like, which he just like, it was a thing. It was like giving permission to be like, it's okay. Cause for me, it was real hard. I felt like I was failing my parents if I didn't get an orchestra job. And then like, it was a real, it was a real weird thing where they were Jewish parents that didn't push me to be a doctor. They pushed me to be an artist, <laughs> but it worked out. My sister's an artist too. She's an actress. Um, but like, I felt like I was failing them if I didn't get that. And, uh, and once like Tim kind of gave me permission, he's like, if that's not what you want to do, then let's do this. And I was like, Oh, okay. And so then like my lessons became playing along with parliament records and Ohio players records and like going to hear bands and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it was so amazing. And then I, you know, moved to New York, <laughs> you know, it worked out. But you were in, in grad school, uh, you finished grad school yeah. in Cleveland? In, so Pittsburgh. I oh, went, to, went Carnegie to Carnegie Mellon. Mellon. Okay. So I went to Cleveland, Juilliard, and then Carnegie Mellon. So you went to Juilliard to start out grad school, and you're like, no, this is not working. Yeah, it just, it just wasn't the place for me. I, I just wasn't, like, ready. I wasn't, I, I wasn't, you know, I was glad I went to school in Cleveland because there were really no distractions there. Mm -hmm. I just practiced and went to hear the Cleveland Orchestra on Saturday nights um, and spent time with my friends and my girlfriend. Uh, and in New York, there was just like nothing but distractions. And I just wanted to practice and I was not in a good headspace. And so when Tim came through and kind of gave me that lifeline, I just followed him to Pittsburgh. And, and it was really, it was, it was the best thing that could have happened. So your, what was your emphasis at Carnegie Mellon? I mean, I don't, I don't know much about grad school. I didn't go to grad school, but... It was symphonic. I mean, percussion? it's the same. I, I was a performance major okay. there as well. I got a master's in performance music. Okay. Um, I, I was just still studying, you know, I was, I was really a timpani major in both undergrad and grad school. I was, I was a timpani major. I was studying to be really focused on timpani. I could, excuse me, I could play everything else, but I never got, I never got like musical highs playing orchestral percussion, but I got musical. My first musical high I ever experienced was playing Timpani for um, Romeo and Juliet, Overture Fantasy, Tchaikovsky, when I was at Interlochen, my junior year of high school. Um, and I just remember like playing that role at the end and like having like a full like flush over my body and starting to like just have like emotional overload, just playing this huge timpani role surrounded by the sound of this orchestra. And uh, that was like my first musical high. And I was like, oh, wow. And I remember telling my dad about it. And my dad was like, you know, 
you can be a professional musician. That's something that's a job that you can do. And I was like, oh, wow. Because I also wanted to be like a graphic designer or an English teacher or maybe some sort of a sociologist, anthropologist person. I had a, had a lot of interests and I was a big nerd and a good student. Um, but then I found this like passion. You know, so you, for, you for wound school. up moving to New York City after grad school. What yeah. year was that? Yeah. Summer of 99. 99. And your first job, did you uh, go right into something professionally? Did you have a, a gig lined up? No. So, so my, um, my, 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 my friend from undergrad and roommate at Juilliard uh, is this composer named John Mackey, who I'm still really good friends with. I saw him last month when I was in San Francisco. Um, and uh, he had stayed at Juilliard and was living in New York and he was working at the Lincoln center archives. And when I was thinking about maybe moving to New York, um, I, I came here to, he had written some music chamber music for a string quartet, clarinet, piano and drums for the Parsons dance company. And he had written all this percussion music with me in mind. And so I came to New York to, to do this and we rehearsed for a week for two weeks and played, played at the Joyce. And while I was here doing that, um, I reconnected with my friend, Tom Kitt, who I had met at Interlock and we were in the same cabin at Interlock in the, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And he had been trying to get me to move to New York for years. Like we became real fast friends at Interlock in like the second day or third day we were there, we like found a cabin that had a piano and a drum set and climbed in through the window and spent our whole summer in that cabin, just playing music together. And uh, so while I was here to do that gig with the dance company for John in at nighttime, we were rehearsing with Tom and a bass player and guitarist and rehearsing songs and doing things. And um, we had been like, he had been like sending me cassette tapes for years of songs he was writing. Like, what do you think about this? And I would like put drum parts to it and send it back and like doing the stuff. Um, like I've been in next to, nor next to normal. I like have the cassette somewhere in a shoebox from like 1997 when he wrote that song and mailed it to me, you know, and was like, what do you think about this? What do you think about the bridge? You know, like, as, as, you know, some, we've been working on these songs for a long time. Um, but so I did this gig and then I was playing with, for these dancers. And at the end of that gig, a couple of the dancers were like, do you play dance classes? And I was like, of course I play dance classes. And I had no idea what that meant at all. I didn't even play, I didn't even play hand drums at that time. And they were like, Oh great. And, you know, in a couple of weeks I'm teaching this, this workshop. And the other guy was like, Oh, I'm teaching a workshop in the afternoon the same week. And they were, and they were like, you should do it. And so I was like, absolutely. And I talked to my sister and I was like, can I come stay with you? Cause she was already living here at that point. And I went back to Pittsburgh and I bought a djembe and I checked out some videos of the Royal Ballet of New Guinea, which are, you know, all djembe photos, like, and like slow motioned it and figured out how to play djembe. And then like came back and started playing for those two weeks, played dance classes. And again, we set up to do another, uh, to do a gig at Arlene's grocery since I was going to be in town with Tom Kitt. So during the day I was playing dance classes. So, you know, I was 25 playing for a bunch of dancers <laughs> and then in the evening rehearsing with the band. And then we did a gig and all the dancers came to the gig and the dance company that I played for came. And I was like, I'm moving to New York right now. <laughs> so, so I was like, but how am I going to do it? So John was like, there's an opening with jazz at Lincoln center because they're going to be moving out. He's like, it's hush hush, but they're going to, they're buying the Coliseum and they're going to open a new jazz at Lincoln center complex. And they need to extract their music from the Lincoln center archives to make their own music library. And so I was like, well, I know about jazz. I had taken like, aside from playing it, I had taken like jazz history at all three schools I went to. I mean, I always love jazz. And so like, but I am like a total Luddite with technology. So I went to the, came up and went to the interview and I impressed enough with my knowledge of the music that they were like, okay, you can do it. So when I moved here, my, the, the, my job was, was to be like the archivist to create the library, which was freaking thrilling. Cause I was like holding Duke Ellington's manuscripts in my hand, <laughs> like looking at like his notation. It was, it was, it was mind blowing. It's still mind blowing to this day when I think about it. Um, but that was amazing. And that led to like, it didn't lead to any playing gigs, but at the time, like, um, uh, Winton 
heard me talking to my boss and was like, I need a guy like that. That's organized to help me with this project I'm doing. So then I ended up having like a key to Witten's apartment and was like helping him. It was when he was writing blood on the floor with James Oliverio for the, for the first collaboration between the New York film Lincoln center jazz orchestra and Oliverio. I didn't know him personally, but I, I, he had written my teacher, a timpani concerto. So I was like, Oh, I've studied your timpani concerto. And he was like, wait, you know, you know, you know about real music and stuff. And so then I ended up like writing and helping with the percussion parts for that, for that piece of music, like hanging out. When so it didn't lead to any playing, but it led to some really incredible experiences and exposure. Um, but that was like, so I had this job working at Lincoln center and then working for went and working for James Oliverio. And that was a really cool year where I didn't have a lot of playing, but that was like an inter- a really cool transition into New York for me was, was that. Um, did yeah. you still have a goal of be uh, becoming a professional tempest? Oh, I did. I know I had let go. This is slightly dark, but um, I, um, when I, when I was still at, at, at Carnegie Mellon, I had taken the audition for a principal timpani job at the Columbus symphony. And it had narrowed it down to three people and they decided to each have us back for three months to play with the orchestra to see who they liked best. And so I had a great, a great run there. Um, it was really, really great. Um, and one thing that happened was while I was there, I remember when I like, I remember my first day in, I had like studied all the scores. We were doing Prokofiev five and, and, uh, marriage figure overture and stuff. And I had studied all the scores and I was like, I got there early as they would let me to like work on the timpani and clear the head. So everything being tuned. And I had the score next to me on a stand and I was all ready to go. And like everybody walked in like two minutes before downbeat and like just whipped out their horn and their violin, you know? And then like, we were like in the middle of like the second to last bar of the symphony when like the clock ticked and people just put their instruments down like before the last chord and it was like, it's break, you know? And I was like, come on, what's wrong with you people? And after three months, I was like looking at the clock and being like, it's break. And I noticed that. And I was like, I do not want music to be a job. If music is a job, I'm going to go make a lot more money and do something else, you know? And then, but I still wanted it. I wasn't like totally ready to walk away. So anyway, the end, the end of my section came and the last person did it. And then it was, it was time to like find out who got the thing. And I got this phone call from the personnel director of the orchestra. And he was like, Hey, you know, and they called it like seven 30 in the morning on like a Tuesday or something. I was still living in Pittsburgh at the time. And he was like, hi, you know, I just wanted to let you know where we really appreciate it. We decided to go in another direction. And I was devastated because all the people in the orchestra to whom I had spoken were like, you got the job. Like everybody loves you. The conductor adores you. You got the job. And I was like packing my stuff up to move to Columbus. And, and, and like two months later, I got a phone call from the principal percussionist, who's a great guy. And he asked if I, he was like, you know, I'm so sorry what happened. You know, we need an, an extra for a summer pops concert. Do you want to come play? And I was like, you know, I really don't. What, you know, what happened that's such a bad taste in my mouth. And he was like, he's like, well, you know what happened, right? And I was like, no. And he said, he said that when they went to vote, there were, there's 12 orchestra members on the panel and the conductor and 11 of them voted for me. And one person voted for someone else who was a friend he had gone to school with. He was like, and he was the concert master. And apparently everyone was like, well, Damien won the job. This is the story that I was told. And, and, the, and apparently this violinist like lobbied the conductor for a couple of weeks and said, I was too green. I was too inexperienced. I wouldn't be able to handle the pressures and got the conductor to overturn it and hire the other guy. And what the guy told me, you know, was that about a year later, the guy called me again just to see how I was doing. At that point I had moved to New York and I was really happy with the decision and everything. But like, you know, I said, you know, that, that was a real turning point for me because like, you know, my, my thing was, I don't like schmoozing and I don't like being fake. And so I felt like in order to be successful in almost all the rest of parts of music, you had to be willing to go out and do the schmooze and tell people how great they are and, and not be yourself in, in a rehearsal and all this stuff. And I was like, but, but classical music is the one meritocracy. You're behind a screen, you audition, blah, blah, blah. And like, when I heard that story, I was just like, it's not a meritocracy. So 
if it's not a meritocracy, I want to go play drums in New York City. And that's what got me to move. And so I was grateful for it, but at, I had come around to being like, I don't want to be in that world. I don't want to be in a world that like music is a job. I don't want to be in a world where they look down on you because you play drum set on the side. I don't, I don't want to be in a world where, you know, they don't understand that Shostakovich has a pocket and a groove, you know, like I remember going to hear the Cleonorsha and they were doing Shostakovich 10, which is like the end of that is a freaking like heavy metal mosh band. It's like amazing. It's like, it's so cool. And I remember like someone behind me going, excuse me, young man, could you please sit still? I'm trying to listen to the music. And I was like, do you know that classical music is based on dance forms? Like you're supposed to move to this music, you know, and all these little combined things that happened around the same time just said, I was like, you're in the wrong place. And so I had let go of wanting to be a timpanist and just wanted to play all music again. And that, you know, that combined with the dance music gig, that dance performance gig sent me to New York. How do you reconcile the fact that, you know, you said you didn't want, you didn't want a job, but now, you know, doing shows, it's kind of like having a job. How do you, how do you see it or make, make sense out of that? That's actually a really great question. Um, it's funny. I've been really, really fortunate. Um, you know how it is as a drummer, you're part of a show from the creation. Like you're usually there on that first day of the first rehearsal, the very first reading. And so I'm not totally sure what your experience is, but mine has been that I've gotten to create the drum parts for the shows that I've played with the exception of one show. I've gotten to write all the books for all the shows I've played. And so I feel a sense of a sense of like ownership of them. And I also have always left space. Now this is different from subbing because subbing is a real different gig. And we talk about that separately, but when I'm playing the show, that's my show. Um, I, I feel like I'm still getting to express myself within the context. I'm not going to say confines because I don't feel confined within the context of what it's trying to say and communicate to the audience, you know? So uh, one of the things that, that I thought was so great that I loved about classical music and it wasn't a job for me was that like, even though you're playing written timpani parts, like, you know, I would, this is before Googling, I would go to the library and I would get out books on the composer and I'd get out books on the pieces if there, there were any and books and, and look up like what was happening socially and historically at the time the pieces were written. And I would try to find out as much about that, the piece as I could. And it would like, it would find its way into my version of how I played the music, you know? And I feel like when you play a show, you're part of the storytelling. And if you're just playing your part, then you probably shouldn't be doing that gig, in my opinion. Like, I feel like we are there. It's just like I do when I play with any singer in a band. Like, I am there to support what they're trying to do. And I feel like when I'm playing in a show, my job is to support the storytelling, to support the ambience or the atmosphere or the emotion or whatever that is. Or if it's just like a dance break, then it's to support the dancers or the energy or the buoyancy of the moment. Um, so I never feel like I'm just like playing a part in for one for one thing and i also always like you know and this is something that it varies from pit to pit and i'm sure you've had the same experience but like you know there are some people that are just there doing a job and showing up and playing their notes so what you're there for is for me it's the interaction between you and the other musicians the you know it's hard to interact with the cast you hope that they're listening to you but you don't really know but like you at least can like feel that that bass player is listening to you. And when you shift, he's shifting with you a little bit. And when you like, maybe you hear the guitarist like laying into something a little different, you bring that hi hat up a little different that day. And like, that's thrilling every time for me. Like I got emotional, but like, I never get tired of that experience. It's so exciting. It's that connection. It's the thing that I miss so much about this whole period is like, you know, like, was I grateful for the like six or seven, like zoom, uh, you know, home recording records I got to do for people. I was, but it didn't feel like I was playing music. You know, it felt like I was in a room by myself, almost like practicing, learning something, you know, cause you were just doing it by yourself, but it's that interaction with the people you're working with. That's so exciting. And so every night is different. Even if what's on the page is the same, even if you, I, I rarely play the part the same exact way every night, but even if I do, even the parts that I do, 
you feel it differently every night because you had a different day that day and you, you know, you read something that made you happy or some, or you talked to a relative that made you feel sad. And so you play it differently that night. And so I never feel like I'm, I never, I never feel like I'm going to work. And one of the things that I always like say when I like give advice to people that are doing it or doing their first show, if they ask, I don't give it unsolicited, but if they ask, I always say like, if you don't feel like going to work that night, sub out because somebody else does feel like it. And you shouldn't be there if you don't want to be there because your heart isn't in it and someone else needs the money and wants to play. And so I, I really try to live by that. If I don't feel like playing that night, I, I make a phone call, you know, so I, I don't really have that experience of it feeling like a job because I don't let it happen. What was the first show that you did? That I subbed or that was my book? Well, first show that you subbed or uh, first show that you did in New York City as a drummer on Broadway or off Broadway? Um, well, actually the very first show I did was a limited run, uh, Mario Cantone's one man show laugh Horror. Um, and this was back when Tom was still a player. He wasn't yet like Tom Kitt in bold print. Um, and the Tom Kitt band was Mario's backup band. We did a lot of backup bands for comedians in the early 2000s. Wasn't Mike Aaron's in that band too? Mike played and Dan Grenis yes, was the bass player. Yes. Yeah, really great bass player. He's based in Vegas now, but I I miss him. Such a good player. And, you know, Mikey. And uh, so we were, we were the band and, and that was the first show that we did. It was really fun. Um, But my first Broadway show was the original color purple. um, I think that's where I got, that's where I met you. I think. Yeah. That's where we met. And you're subbing for, for buddy. Um, uh, Yeah. We, that was my first Broadway show. That was amazing. And that was a show I got because I played dance classes and I had played for, for Don, a workshop that Donald Byrd did at Steps. And Donald said, I just got asked to do a, um, a workshop for this possible Broadway show. Would you be, you know, he's like, I want to, I want to have a drummer. He's like, he's like, I'm just paying you out of my pocket. So it's not gonna be that much, but would you want to come do it? And I was like, of course, you know, whatever, get a chance to work with Donald Byrd. Amazing. And, uh, and that led to, to getting that gig ultimately. Cause when, you know, we ended up creating this 18 minute African ballet during that workshop, like 11, eight or 11 minutes, which stayed in the show. And I had written this like giant African percussion score for it. And, uh, so that he ended up saying like, I have to bring my, I have to bring my percussionist with me to do this. And so I ended up getting the gig with that, which was really, really fortunate. Well, you, you started out, the first show you did was Color Purple. Then, then after Color Purple, what was the next one that came your way? High Fidelity. I think I saw that once. I, I, I really need to see the movie. You were one of like the six people that saw it. <laughs> How long did it last? It didn't last It was a great long. show. It w- no, it wasn't. The, ad, the producers didn't advertise for it. People like in the next theater over didn't know that we were opening. Wow. I mean, it was, it was, there was no advertising for it. It was a really, really fun show. It's just, it got, it got, it also was a victim of one of the worst reviews ever written by Brantley that had absolutely nothing to do with the show. Like it, it, it was like a, a last straw moment for Brantley in terms of, um, movie adaptations, which of course now is almost every single musical. Right. But at that point it was like a tipping point for Brantley. And it was really just a tirade against movie musicals, musicals based on pre-existing properties, I should say. And the, the review said almost nothing about our show, but it was scathing at the same time. And uh, it was a really unfortunate thing, but yeah, but it was really great. And Tom, I still, in my head, the songs that Tom wrote for that show pop in my head all the time because they were so catchy. And Amanda Green's lyrics were so, so funny. Um, just really great stuff. So after High Fidelity, what was after that? The next thing after High Fidelity was was off-Broadway show called Great American Trailer Park Musical, which was super fun. That was a crazy fun band, a crazy fun show. Um, and then maybe was the next thing... Adam's family, maybe I'm not sure. That was a really amazing, that was a great experience. That was great and bad and great and bad, you know, up and down, happy, sad. Like the show said, there were some great things about it. Getting to work with Andrew Lippa. It was the first show I did with Mary Mitchell, which was amazing because she's just the greatest. Um, and, uh, and Andrew was, 
and Andrew's such a great composer and great singer and like having him in the room was so exciting. It's like having Tom in the room, you know, like just getting to work with these great composers like Tom Kitt and Andrew Love was so lucky. So, so great. Um, and Adam's family. And then, Oh no, before Adam's family was next to normal. Next to normal was before Adam's family. Cause I left next to normal to do Adam's family. Yeah. Next to normal was, and that was like my first big hit that I got to play. What next to normal? Next to normal. Yeah. Now, how long did that last and why did you leave? Um, uh, so we had done, you know, I had worked on that show for like 10 years cause it was Tom's and I had done like, you know, when you like play like two or three songs from a show on a concert with other shows, like, you know, I had been doing it since back then. And, uh, before we had even done a workshop and a reading, all these things. And then we did, they did a nymph run that I couldn't do, I think because I was in lock-in for a call purple or something. And then we did the, off Broadway at um, second stage. And then we did the DC at arena stages where we like totally rewrote the show. I say we, but Tom, Tom and Brian and totally rewrote the show and then brought it back and then opened on Broadway and it's a big hit. Um, that show was so close to me emotionally and the, the show itself was so emotional. I mean, playing that show, you know, you would hear people, heaving and sobbing and breaking down in the audience nightly. You know, it was a really powerful piece of art that Brian and Tom created. And, uh, and it, it, it actually, you know, we, we were on stage and like I said before, like if I'm not in it, if I'm not supporting and connecting and communicating and playing, then it's not worthwhile to me. But that was a show that I needed to find a way to, to separate and I, I couldn't. And I was going through the emotional ringer every single night and it was just, it was a lot. And after a year, you know, and I got, I, I, you know, I got married during it and um, just a lot of stuff was happening. And after a year of it, I just needed to step away from it. It was too much to play every night. It was so thrilling because that, that book, I mean, I've been lucky, like I said, to write all my books, but that book is like really me in a drum book. Like it's all the stuff that I do in terms of feels and pockets and the djembe drum set thing. And like, it just was, I was too close to it. It was, and so when I had this chance to step to this comedy show that I had been working on also for like five or six years, um, it felt like the right time to, to step aside and, and let someone else sit, sit in the chair, you know, and then they got Shannon who's so great and Shannon got to play it. And, uh, and it was, and it was the right move for me to step away and, and do something else. So that's why I left. It was, it was, it was, because the show was so good, basically, that I had to step away, <laughs> you know. Then you went to Adam's Family. I went to Adam's Family, and uh, that show was really fun, and I got to play another fun hybrid book that I had written. And, uh, you know, I, I really liked, it was sort of like a step on the way to where, when I would eventually get to SpongeBob, because it was nice to play a show that made people laugh, that like people would come, like people would come to next normal and I'd see them afterwards and they would just look like they'd been crying for an hour and they would say like, I just need to walk around for a little bit before I can talk, you know, like they would, you know, wow. they'd be hit, which felt great, but also was like, it was nice to play Adam's family and come out and just be like, that was so much fun. I loved it. You know, like to just have a different kind of reaction, you know, like probably I haven't seen any too proud. I will admit, but man, that music, when I started learning your book, like I was like, how can you not just have so much fun every night? <laughs> this music is so great. <laughs> oh man. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I love it. You did. If then after Adam's family. Yeah. If then I think that show also got like, a, was like a, a victim of its excellence in a way. Like, I mean, it was, it was Tom and Brian and Michael who had just done, you know, um, if had just done next to normal was their last show, a gigantic hit. It was the first time that Adina and Anthony had been together since rent. Um, you know, it just, it had, it had so many, you know, it had LaChance, which was like her first big show since color purple. It had Jen Colella had Jerry Dixon. I mean, it was an embarrassment of riches in this show, you know, um, and, uh, and Starabin was orchestrating again. So it was, it was, I think the expectations were so gigantic that there's no way it could have lived, you know, how do you live up to next to normal and rent? Like with the addition of Jerry Dixon and LaChance and Jen Colella, you know, it's just crazy. And, uh, I actually, I think it was, uh, for me, 
it was such a different experience because it was the first time I had done a show with Tom where I hadn't been in the room. So the first time I got to see the show, we were like, was rehearsals for the, in, when rehearsals started in out of town in DC. And I was like, what's happening? It was so weird to be playing songs that I didn't know when they were already happening and I didn't know the story and I was trying to play catch up. Um, but you know, the music was great because it was Tom Kitt and the lyrics were super brilliant and funny because they were Brian Yorkie. So the piece was great. I think that, I think they, the trouble with that show was just that they didn't figure out exactly how to tell the story. And also like, not all audiences are that smart. <laughs> I mean, you really had to pay attention. You couldn't, you really couldn't passively consume that show. You had to pay attention the whole time. And, and not everybody wants to think when they go to a musical, you know, I think people go to a play with a different expectation than a musical sometimes. And, uh, so I think it suffered from, uh, bloated expectations and, but I think it was a great piece and the music is great. And anytime I get to play a song from there, I'm always like, Oh my gosh, this is such a great song. You know, like, so, you know, it did, it did well. And, you know, I, I, I love what Adina did, but Adina can be polarizing people. Some people don't like her voice. Some people do, you know, and it is what it is. So, but I loved that experience. I thought it was great. And I also got to meet some great people like uh, Tamika Lawrence, who then I, you know, formed a band with and played with her for a while. And she's a freaking force of nature. And um, first time I got to work with Pearl Sun and a whole bunch of great people that I met on that show. That's the fun thing, you know, about doing shows is all the people you meet and then get to work with afterwards. So. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and you're listening to part one of my interview with Damien Bassman. In part two of our conversation, we talk about how he got to work with Christian Chenoweth doing the show My Love Letter to Broadway, how he got the gig with SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical, and my experience working with him as a sub, some very funny stories, and how he got the job as the drummer for Jagged Little Pill on Broadway. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind the scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones, You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. <laughs>